welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I'm Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound On Sight, and I'm joined as always by Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight. Kate, it's my birthday tomorrow. You're also a Cancer, is that right? Yes. We have like That's... the worst like <laughs> image ever. I Maybe some people love crabs, but... Uh... But yes, I was going to say, we've done a wonderful job of making sure we record on our birthdays, or near enough. Yeah, I mean, we're going to be recording tomorrow as well, and obviously this isn't going to go out until weeks and weeks later, but uh, that's fun. Yeah, go team. It's like we were destined to do this podcast together. (laughs) Uh, Just as a reminder for listeners tuning in, uh, this is going to be a spoiler-free, mostly, podcast regarding season one, episode eight, Fromage, written by Jennifer Schur and Brian Fuller and directed by Tim Hunter. There will be a section at the end of the podcast in which we will talk about spoilery stuff, but that will be noted in the post. So if you're watching for the very first time, feel free to fast forward at that moment. And with that, we'll introduce our special guest for this week, who will be joining us from Sound On Sight, from TV Overmind, from Geeks Unleashed, and from Process Media, is there anything else? <laughs> Are you in a dozen other places, Randy? Not at the moment, but if I could be, you know. Okay, the next time we have you on, I expect at least four more other places. But uh, please welcome Randy Dinkovich. Thank you for joining us. Of course. All right, let's get into it. So this is actually my favorite episode from the first season of Hannibal, and I had to kind of wait uh, after watching last week's because I wasn't sure if it was that one or this one. Uh, and it was this one, and I know a lot of people had some problems with it back when it aired, but I absolutely love the third act here. So Will's tense scene as he descends into Tobias's basement, and then Hannibal's fight with Tobias in the office. Um, Randy, are these scenes too much of a departure for you in terms of the kind of show Hannibal has become, or can we allow for this kind of action when it's done this well? Well, I think, of course, on a show that has so much style as Hannibal, you know, I I like to see Hannibal do different things. I like to see Hannibal do ghost stories and horror shows and, you know, even romantic scenes because it's so it's there's so much style to it. There's so much substance to the sound and, and the visuals that I'm willing to Hannibal can be whatever it wants. It could be it could turn into a, a version of Friends and I would still watch it. Did these scenes work for you, Kate, because most of what we've gotten so far has been a little bit toned down, many conversations. Nothing has really been this action-heavy. Oh, I'm good with it. Uh, I really enjoyed that element when I first watched the episode when it first aired, and then enjoyed it when I watched it again for this podcast. And uh, no, I think this is a show that's very good at evoking a mood or a tone, and the physicality that that fight scene lends the character, which is which is an element that is so rarely drawn upon in gen- in the films that I've seen at least and in the popular conception of the character. What we think about when we think about Hannibal Lecter, we do not think about him usually as a physical being, more as a psychological threat. And I think it's important to remind viewers every now and again that he does he is a physical being as well. I yeah, cuz the Obviously, the most popular interpretation of the character has been Anthony Hopkins, and we don't really see him performing martial arts, really. And that is something that is a part of Thomas Harris's character. And so this is kind of unusual to see this. And I think this is why, at least if I'm recalling correctly, some of the reviews that I had read had a little bit of a problem in terms of 
can Hannibal really do this? He's kind of turning into a superhero of sorts. Uh, and yet we've seen how cultured he is, uh, how many deep and passionate interests he has. To me, it makes sense that he would be trained in this way and that as a person who needs to take down uh, other people, presumably people who are probably quite big, uh, Hannibal's a lean guy, so he needs to compensate in, in some way, um, that he would be able to do these kinds of things. So I thought it was a really beautifully choreographed scene, obviously, but also just to kind of see Hannibal in that role was enjoyable. Uh, Randy, just sticking with a couple of these uh, sequences a little bit longer, the the wheel scene as he's going down reminded me a lot about um, the Silence of the Lambs sequence with Clarice that's shot in the dark or, or through um, the X-ray vision. Did the shooting of this impress you? Of the just the entire the climactic sequences in general, where it comes from. Yeah, um, because the the visual stuff that we've seen on Hannibal is very particular and it's very beautiful, and this seems to be a little bit different, but almost just as effective. Well, like I well, like you said earlier, you know, it's come it's something different that the show normally doesn't do, and and it goes from you know it's it's very much an episode that visually builds towards these moments without really letting on once the sequence starts it takes a minute before you realize that everything's changing from the colors to the shot composition and then all of a sudden it's just an explosion of sudden cuts as you know will makes his discovery and then we cut to the the office and we have our fight scenes there and it's just the explosion of it all it's just it's it's overwhelming almost because at this point the show's been so meticulously paced and it's the first time we see hannibal lose control of the situation because you know for a while there tobias has him on has him on edge he's got you know he wraps him up with wire and you know it takes him a long time for him to wear him down and it's the first time we've seen hannibal the closest he would come he doesn't lose control but it's the first time we've seen him his control be challenged by something and i think the the way the scenes are shot play into that very well because when you know the psychiatrist and franklin are out of the room then that's when the shooting the angles become different and the, the cutting becomes a lot faster and i think it works really well i think one of the things that hannibal's never gotten a lot of credit for is how it choreographs just movement on the show whether it's people moving from room to room or the way action scenes are are shot and as Hannibal continues I think I think action scenes have become one of its forte even though it's not something they do very often when they do it they do it very well and I'm going to come back to this in the the spoiler section because there's definitely some parallels to be made uh Kate Alana thinks too much she says which is why she doesn't date (laughs) yeah I knew I liked her (laughs) she maintains her professional curiosity for Will and says that they would not be good for each other Hannibal tells Will that he would resent Alana for studying him in a certain circumstance. Regardless of what's good for these two characters, what do you want to see out of the Will-Alana relationship, if anything? This is a very different question in Season 1, Episode 8, mm-hmm. as it is with all the information I have, having watched the show uh, through the second season. And I, again, we've already mentioned it, this will be a spoiler-free answer to your question when i first watched this i thought and, and it's in my notes was i rewatched the episode as well that 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 scene we get with alana and will which every shipper out there should love i know that uh, i wrote that it's just super adorable and and cute and and also very um 
very honest. And I, that's what I really appreciate about it. It's not... There's clearly an attraction there. The two characters obviously have a connection and they care for each other. But it also is very respectful of of Alana and of the two of them, really, and her, her reasonings for not pursuing a relationship with Will. And it does a good job of showing without underlining, maybe, why it's probably a good idea for her to not move things forward. And I also love how respectful it is of her decision to not pursue dating at this point in her life. It's, it's, he, she's not judged for that. Whereas on most TV shows, if a character isn't paired off or isn't actively out dating, it's, um, there's something wrong with them. And, uh, and, and so it's just, that's something you rarely see on TV. Somebody who isn't obsessed with their job or doesn't have something like socially wrong with them, but who isn't out seeking a partner. And so to have it just be sort of who Alana is or where she's at in her life right now, uh, I thought, I thought was really nice. And then the way that they, they pair that, that kiss between the two of them, which clearly they're both digging, uh, with, you know, <laughs> filming it right in front of that torn up chimney, demonstrating just how messed up Will is right now. That is, you know, the, the destruction is right behind them. And so she walks away from that uh, and makes the self-preserving choice. And uh, I, just the way that it's all put together, I think, is really, uh, it works very well. And I should mention, while we're talking about Alana, this week I will be drinking a beer in honor of her because she likes beer. And it's yummy. This is a Domaine du Page from Two Brothers, which is a French-style country ale, apparently, and it's very tasty. Um, it's, maybe it's not the most themed beverage for this episode, but I thought I would give a nod to Alana. Uh, Sean, what will you be drinking this week? Uh, I just realized that mine kind of is themed. This is a, a bourbon from um, St. George Spirits, and this is called Breaking and Entering, so that can actually be applied. Ah, nice. So what did you think of that of that moment? Were you squeeing a little bit like I may have been? I mean, you, you used the word cute, right? And um, I would absolutely – or did you say adorable? Probably both. Okay, yeah. Just, just <laughs> both the way, combined. Yeah. Just the way that she's like speculating, not that this is a relationship, it's just a kiss, and then she pauses and says – a very good kiss or a great kiss. Um, yeah, it, it was it was fantastic. It's complicated though, obviously, because the context here is that uh, Will catches on that she is aware that he's imagining things. So the reason that he's hammered into his chimney is because he's thought that he's heard an animal behind it, and this is not something that's actually there. We get a good indication visually based on the dogs not even reacting. And so Will doesn't seem to understand this. Um, but he's certainly worried. And then he talks to Hannibal about this, and he calls it uh, a clutch for balance almost. So maybe that the act of kissing her isn't entirely uh, romance-motivated, that it has to do with finding some kind of security for himself as he's struggling. So I, I want to see them together, not because... Uh, I'm a TV viewer who prefers my characters to be in relationships, but because I think that these two, despite them not being good for each other, still make a good match in many ways. I think intellectually they do. And if it were a circumstance where Alana 
could avoid analyzing him, um, that I think that there would be something there. Randy, we haven't had you on the podcast before, even for season two, so I know that you have a bunch more information ha having seen the rest of Hannibal, but what do you think about this relationship between these two characters so far? Well, I think it's. I think this episode kind of gives you the perfect little tease into the window of what, because, you know, at the end of the day, we you, season one of Hannibal does such a great job making us empathize with Will, a man whose mind is being pulled away from him as much as he tries to hold on to it. And you kind of, and you see him throughout the season, you see him just desperate to make connections with people, whether it's with Jack or it's with Hannibal or it's here with Alana. And, you know, you can see that he's so close to it, but he's really, you know, with his mental state being where it is, he's so far away. Like it would be so unhealthy for him to be with her, but that's all we want to do. It's all we want to see. And, I just think the actors played so well. They played so restrained in that scene, even though you can tell that it's not necessarily where the characters want to be. It's just conveyed so well. And I, and like you said, the way they compose that shot in front of his, his, you know, destroyed chimney is just fuller, fuller brilliance at its best, you know, up to this point, I think the show's done a re did a really good job of, you know, kind of hinting towards that, you know, will has always had a thing for Alana, even though, Alana may have kind of had a thing for Hannibal at some time in the past, like in this episode, I don't know if they, they both say it in this episode, but I see this episode, the one before when Alana and Hannibal discussed the same thing, you know, about how come they never dated before. Um, I think the show does a good job. Like, I don't want I can't, it's hard to do this. It's hard to talk yeah. about this without spoiling anything. Um, I, I think that, I think they do a really good job of like, showing us why these two people are their kind of damaged goods work well together. And then you finally get a moment of them where one of them is willing to reach across the table and the other one wants to reach back, but they know it's, it's not good for them. And I just think it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking little scene, but it's, it's such a tease. How frequently or how rarely I was going to go the opposite way with it, but I'm just going to be sincere for a moment. How rare is it to see characters make a healthy relationship choice on TV and not have it like accompanied with tortured music and looks of longing for weeks afterwards. Uh, I, I really like that the show understands her choice in that moment and doesn't belabor it. You're it right. doesn't have to be complicated. It's yeah. they allow it to be simple, and it speaks. It speaks for itself, and it's really it's just it's beautiful. It's a beautiful little scene. And I also love that this comes right after last week's episode, where uh, Alana mentioned, you know, calls Hannibal out for flirtatiously changing the subject, and says that Will does that same thing, and then we get it here because she they're talking about the 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 torn up chimney, and then he kisses her and changes the subject. <laughs> Randy, you mentioned the that Will has almost a need to connect with other people. And to me, this comes from a place of loneliness. And loneliness is, I think, the pervasive aspect of this episode. So not just Will, but Hannibal, Alana, Tobias, and Franklin, I think, are all uh, lonely and feel alone to various degrees. And that sometimes gets the better of them, and they make rash decisions because of that. Uh, could you speculate as to why the power of loneliness can be so overwhelming using any of these characters as examples? Um, well, when 
you're dealing with something that's, um, you know, when you get when you get lonely and you get desperate for that human connection, you're reaching out and you can't find it. And you keep, you can't find it. You tend to guard yourself against things, you know, as Demorier and Hannibal talk about, you know, he puts up these walls and he challenges people to come across them. And if somebody comes across them, then, you know, he, he generally views them as somebody interesting. And I think that you see that with, with Alana and Will, you know, um, Alana talks to Will about how she kind of knew that he had a crush on her for years and he never did anything about it. And, you know, it's about in those moments when you expose yourself, you know, whether somebody's out there to pull, to reach back or reach out and connect with you. And if it, you know, if it doesn't connect, it drives you even to a deeper place of anger and hatred, as you know, we see with Tobias when Hannibal clearly doesn't, isn't a fan of the way he does things. And I just think it's, it's did it kind of embeds one of the, the deep seated themes of this show that it takes a little while to come out in the first few episodes when it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of flashy things and introducing these characters and setting up all this stuff. And this is kind of the episode, this episode and the one before it are where these dominoes start to fall. And, and as will, you know, it's all centered on will. And as will starts to, starts to unhinge from everything else. It seems like everything around him also starts becoming unhinged around it. So it's almost like Will is this little nucleus. And when, when he loses his connection to other things, everything else starts getting darker. And I think this episode is something that really captures that in that character to push forward. I mean, I don't really know if that answers your question properly, but no, it does. And and you get at a lot of what I wanted to talk about. And that has to do with, like you said, one of the, the big, running themes of this series and i know i've mentioned it on the podcast before and this isn't a spoiler but there's a future line of dialogue in which Hannibal uh suggested that he is without peer and being without peer literally is being in almost total isolation and so loneliness i think is a big big part of this series and how the characters deal with it and to me just on a personal level whether it's watching television or reading i think that the best art um has the capacity to, to teach you how to be more comfortable with being alone. That's coming to grips with that um, solitude, I think, uh, and not having it be so overwhelming, I guess. But, uh, Kate, what do you think about loneliness here? Because certainly, I think Franklin and Tobias, each in their different ways, experiences it as well. It's interesting to think of, of loneliness in relation to Tobias, because he doesn't seem to to be feeling it to the same extent that that Hannibal is, but that may also just be because we get to see Hannibal's sessions with Dr. Du Maurier and we don't see anything with Tobias uh, by himself or with someone. He, we don't see him opening up to anyone. So maybe there is that there as well. But uh, Tobias's search or, or request for a friend or, you know, his teasing of that notion maybe with, with Hannibal. I don't know that I trust it or believe him when he says that. And, um, and, and I get a much more sincere need for connection from Hannibal. Uh, and, and we see that from, you know, for example, Hannibal respects has come to respect Franklin enough or value him enough that he gives him the opportunity to leave and survive. And that is something that he wouldn't have not that long ago. And certainly, um, and I think it's because of Franklin's um, 
commitment to Tobias because he didn't turn him in because of these other elements to his personality that uh, that have come out in these last couple of episodes. Whereas as Tobias is actively looking forward to killing this person who is supposed to be his his friend, uh, who he's forged this faux relationship with. Whereas I don't know that that is the case for for Hannibal. So just kind of contrasting our two killers in this episode and their relationship with Franklin, I think is, is interesting. I mean, what do you guys think that any, there's any genuine um, emotion in Tobias that we see this week? Uh, what, I mean, and do you think that Hannibal does have more respect for Franklin now, or was that just, was he just trying to get him out of the room just because it'd be more convenient I well, that was a question that I wanted to ask about Franklin because I wasn't sure why Hannibal would want to let him live, and he's given him a couple a couple chances for that in this episode, but it must be something like what you picked up on um, Franklin's uh, compassion towards Tobias, his loyalty. Uh, there are certain values definitely that Hannibal respects, and I, I think and I mentioned this in one of our earlier podcast, I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago, that I do think that Franklin is a bright individual to some degree, that he's not um, despicable and repulsive in the same way that a lot of the people who Hannibal does not like are. I think that there are good qualities about Franklin and that Hannibal um, sees some of those. So he immediately picks up on, oh, the reason that Tobias told me this information is because he, he knew I would relay it to you. Um, so I think that Hannibal does harbor some amount of compassion, not in the same way that we saw him uh, show um, Bella earlier in the season, but there's something there, and it's lacking in Tobias. And Tobias, to me, seems more like the traditional psychopath who... Maybe it's not psychopath. So what what is the, the medical condition or term for somebody who just does not possess any it's not empathy but i guess compassion towards individuals doesn't like view them as valuable i want to say that sociopath that's it that's what i was looking for even if that's not the, the actual correct one that's the word that i was looking for and he's yeah so tobias to me seems like a sociopath rather than uh the psychopath like hannibal who he says the psychopath is aware of what they are doing and the consequ- consequences of that, Does that well, it's a, i also think um you know hannibal's he, you know, in that scene when, you know, Franklin's in his office and Tobias shows up after uh, Will shot him, there's a distinct, a number of distinct shots where Hannibal is just watching the two of them talk. And in those scenes, you can see in his face when he, when he hears Tobias talk, he, he's almost insulted by the things that he says. And he, he doesn't feel like it's coming from a place of true emotion or compassion. There's a thing, you know, if anything, Hannibal appreciates passion for something. You know, that's that's one thing he can always connect with other people on, even if he doesn't respect them at the end of the day. You know, he can connect with them on that. And when he doesn't see that same, you know, passion for another human being that he should have given that kind of opportunity, the opportunity he's trying to create with Will, I think it angers him. And he feels insulted that this man won't accept what he has and instead wants to look to him, somebody who you know, Hannibal views himself as better as this guy anyway. Like, who is he to think he could be my friend? Like, he's not he's not special like Will is. And so I think that becomes a, a point to Hannibal after, you know, he Franklin, you know, he takes out Franklin, gives him kind of a peaceful way out as opposed to, the, you know, anything Tobias might have done to him or Hannibal may have even done to him had Tobias not been around. 
I think that is kind of in a dark way. Hannibal showing his compassion and saying, you don't have to deal with this monster. I'll deal with them for you. But, you know, also you can't be here because that's trouble for me. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to move on a little bit because there's a few more things I wanted to talk about. Uh, Kate Hannibal seems to knowingly send Will into danger after Tobias says that he's going to kill anyone who comes to inspect his place. And then Hannibal is somewhat surprised and relieved when Will walks in at the end, very much alive. What was the idea behind all of this from Hannibal's perspective? Well, I don't know that... I I don't know that um, Hannibal expected Will to go on the search. Um, But then why would Hannibal be afraid that Will wouldn't be alive? Because, you know, Jack isn't there to search the building. I mean, there's... It's only it's actually odd that there are two regular detectives or, or police officers and Will. That seems it's very convenient so they can kill the red shirts and still have Will be there and involved. But um so there's that element as well, but also I think it's, you know, as soon as Tobias showed up, I think that was, you know, that Tobias wasn't supposed to show up, so something must have gone wrong. Um I I don't know that he was actively trying to send will into danger so much as um just Hannibal knows that they're going to figure it out because there's too many ties there's too many connections it's too obvious who is responsible well don't forget how happy Hannibal is because you know when uh he's not really sure what happened to will because he sees the you, Tobias come back and will's not there and he doesn't know what's going on and when will walks in the room after you know the investigation you know the crime scene unit comes in and whatever and will walks in the room Hannibal looks at him and there's a shot of him looking up and you know there's the he has light in his eyes and his eyes are almost teared up to the point where it's like he's like almost joyous that that will is still alive so I don't I don't really think he expected Tobias to be there and I think it's another thing he thought he thought he had done something to will and I think that really angered Hannibal well and also I think it's just Hannibal knows that if he doesn't say anything when they catch Tobias it's or figure out that he's done it and make the connection of Franklin to Tobias. And then, you know, like there are too many ties. So I think he knows that he should say something. So that way it looks good when they figure it out. Yeah. And so also what you're saying is then that Hannibal is kind of uh, breaking that confidentiality to point Will on the right path quicker and is not expecting him to kind of, be put into danger but just to to get Tobias is that right yeah and then when Tobias shows up that's oh no something's gone wrong Tobias shouldn't be especially injured you know so he knows there's been some sort of a a fight um then that's you know like Randy's saying then that's a cue that oh did he hurt Will too did he hurt my my buddy my buddy old pal <laughs> my BFF maybe uh and that's certainly like you were saying Randy that does not make him a happy Hannibal no. How different the series would be if Will had died right there. Uh, <laughs> Just Randy, Hannibal rampaging for two seasons. Yeah. Randy, Will is losing it more and more in this episode. He's still haunted by Garrett Jacob Hobbs. He keeps hearing specifically wounded animals. And he even talks out loud to one of the victim's corpses in front of the forensics team as if they're not even in the room. Do you find that you are uncomfortable around Will? How does that affect your viewing of the show? Well, like any person interested in human behavior, I find Will to be, he's, it's fascinating. You know, a guy who lives on the edge of reality, who can almost 
visit other realities. He can step into the minds of other people, but he's a person who doesn't understand himself. He's such an interesting paradox as a human being that I find any anything he does is fascinating because he's constantly a person who is trying to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into himself and he doesn't he he never realizes that the farther and farther he goes the harder it gets to get back to the surface you know it's like diving you know the farther down you go and the quicker you try and come back up the more disjarring it is and i think that you know this one of the episodes that starts setting this in emotion where will is really starting to slowly but surely become unhinged from everything around him as i said before and i it's it's an interesting turning point. You know, this is kind of the midpoint of the season. This is one of the, you know, more, more flashy episodes in the first half of the season. You know, things outside of the tableaus and stuff. There wasn't a lot of action. There wasn't a lot of this kind of more, I don't want to, more raw emotion with, you know, romance and Hannibal court, Hannibal's courtship of Will as a best friend begins. And the emotions are very high in this episode. And I think Will is always going to be at the top of that pyramid. So when you see him start to lose it, it's hard to not feel bad for the guy. Like, I don't, I don't know if I'd feel uncomfortable around him. I would just, I would be like Beverly. I would just want to understand. I just want to be able to help the guy and just make things a little bit easier for him at the end of the day. It's, it's difficult to some degree, maybe uncomfortable will differ from viewer to viewer, but I remember rewatching the first season with my brother and just audibly when stuff like this happens where, uh, Will is hearing things, you know, he would recoil like, uh, I don't want to see what's happening next because it is unfortunate and you do feel sympathy for him and you don't want him to have to go through this. Uh, is it difficult for you, Kate, or do you find it kind of more intellectually interesting and so you're kind of looking for these scenes more and more? Well, it, you know, I think it's almost, especially a second time through watching it, I think it's almost funny. Uh, comedic when you get that moment in the in the morgue um, mostly you know because of certain elements of, of future knowledge but uh, when you're watching it the first time I, I, it's exactly as disturbing as it's intended to be they're having this conversation about the victim and the crime and then uh, and then Will chimes in with this super creepy you know killer POV, POV like statement and they're like uh, okay, so back to this is super awkward, guys. Um, and and again, that that puts us in Alana's shoes a little bit when she's like, eh, maybe relationship is not great with this guy at this moment. And it also, uh, it you know, I think it's very much a a reflection of, and and later will become a comment on um, the this type of character in a crime procedural or a crime serial as well. Um, the, the person who's getting too close to the case and everything. And as we get into the next few weeks, we'll get more information about that and we'll, you know, we'll explore it further. But I think they do an effective job of having that type of character and taking the trauma of, of, what's happened to him and what he's around very seriously. I remember when I watched this the first time, just being so excited that Garrett Jacobs, Jacob Hobbs was still a presence on the show in episode eight. I mean, for me, so much of this season and the show is about the effects and consequences of violence um, and the dam the long-term damage it, it can do. And in the pilot, we see the incredibly justified homicide <laughs> The shooting of Will, uh, Will shooting Garrett Jacob Hobbs, and it is still 
messing him up in episode eight. It is still affecting him. He is still not okay. And uh, that is just something you never see on no. shows like this. Many, many other series would have dropped that thread in favor of other things that are developing. And it's not like other things aren't developing. Um, there's plenty that's going on that seems to be long-term. Uh, and yet they've not lost any of that. And it's necessary in many ways. So it's very impressive in terms of looking at it in terms of, of other TV series that are from this genre. Um, one piece of dialogue that I want to bring attention to, uh, Hannibal says, every life is a piece of music. <laughs> you knew I was going to talk about this, right? I have it written down right here as well. <laughs> I have the quote. Every yeah. life is a piece of music. Like music, we are finite events, unique arrangements, sometimes harmonious, sometimes dissonant. And I wanted to look at this, and I would first say specifically about the idea of the finite, um, that I would say both a piece of music and a human life, though they must end at some point, I think they can obtain an infinite quality if they become canonical and their legacy is powerful enough. Uh, Randy, if you wanted to come up, comment on that, you can, but also this sometimes harmonious, sometimes dissonant. Um, if you see a friction between harmony and dissonance in Hannibal's life, because we get a very uh, in-tune, put-together person on the surface, and yet uh, I don't think that quite paints the right picture, or I should say uh, sounds the whole composition in this case. Well, when, when you, you think about what Hannibal says, it's kind of one of those things that you can stretch to your existential beliefs about the universe or something. You know, if you, if you're one of those people that subscribes to something like string theory, you know, something where we are all, the universe is a series of vibrations that are carrying back and forth across the universe and in conjunction with each other, then, you know, the idea behind fromage and the actual musical instruments is this idea of two people trying to find harmony between each other's vibrations. You know, if you, if you play your, you know, if you, the, the musical equivalent of your true self to somebody else and they answer it with them, you know, are you going to create a harmony? Are you going to create a dissonance? Is either one better than the other or neither of them good for anybody? It's one of those weird things that you can take, you can extrapolate out from just about music to just about life to about the universe. You know, it's one of those things you can just stretch out and stretch out. But I think in the context of the show and in this episode in particular, with the idea of this being set against an orchestra, as you have all these instruments trying to find themselves in harmony with something else, because what is what is music if it's just one instrument? You know, you need you need sound, you need depth. And I I think this episode really, really, really plays into that idea with each of its characters and every single conversation where you find two people trying to arrive on the same wavelength or feel out a same wavelength or something and see where it takes them. Yeah. And we talked about loneliness earlier. Certainly you can talk about all of these characters and their relationships uh, in terms of being harmonious or dissonant. Uh, Kate, you're a musician. So obviously I wanted to ask you about this as well. Um, you know, we get the cliche life is a journey. Uh, and in this case we could talk about life as a composition. Do you see, uh, as a musician, any other way uh, playing or listening to music is like the experience of living? Oh, I mean, it. yeah, it can be. 
it can also really not be it can be <laughs> completely superficial but no there's there are any number of parallels that can be drawn between uh, music and the physical act of playing it or singing it or, or being involved in it being subsumed in the rhythm and the melody and the vibration and all of that yeah it's it, if you want to it's it's it can all be there um it doesn't yeah it, it there is a, a purity or there can be a purity to to playing music that you know a oneness with it where you have all these thoughts going on as you're performing or as you're practicing or as you're playing all the the, the myriad details that need to go into the creation of the kind of sound you're trying to express. But in the most ideal of situations, all of those sort of fade and become part of the background noise. And you're just in the moment in the creation of the sound, which is the emotion, which is a story you're trying to tell or a mood you're trying to evoke. And that oneness that can hopefully be achieved when you're playing that can hopefully be understood by somebody in the audience. Um, and again, under the most ideal of situations, um, can be absolutely beautiful and it can be, you know, that, that, that search for that moment is, I think can be tied in this episode to that search for that other person that understands you, that, um, sees what you're trying to create and what you're trying to say about the world or about just a moment in time. And, um, so yeah, there's, I could go on all day if you want. It's that, that connection can be there, um, which is part of why I do what I do. But, um, for, for me, when I listen to that quote, though, what it makes me think about is, uh, cause again, music nerd, uh, what interval would all of the different characters be? So I feel like Hannibal would be a tritone, which is one of the most dissonant intervals. It was called the Devil's Interval back in the day, and then maybe Will's perfect fifth, very, very, very um, harmonious or very uh, consonant, but also completely. Uh, it's not resolved when you hear a perfect fifth together. You just kind of are waiting for it to resolve to have that third in there to complete the picture, so it doesn't feel so empty. You know, like those, that's what this makes me think about who is each character that we're seeing consonant or dissonant or both. And in what, in which combinations do they make the best music? So that's what I, that's what I was thinking about with that, with that quote. And if there are any other music nerds out there, I would love to go to, to talk with you guys about uh, whether I feel like Alana might be, might be like a minor sixth or something. I don't know. So hit me up on Twitter if you're a music nerd and you want to talk Hannibal characters and intervals, because I do. But I know for you guys, I'm just speaking Greek, so uh, <laughs> I'll stop there. Not me. Yeah. I'm a musician. Don't forget. Oh, yeah. So what do you think? Tritone for Hannibal, or is that too on the nose? No, I think I think it's I think it's right. I think it fits right into the sound design, some of the sound design that the show already uses. It's Hannibal is... He is that dark creation that is it's oddly it's haunting in, in how in its beauty and how it comes across and how it's expressed. And I think I think Will's a perfect one as well, because it's it's that beauty that's found in his there's there's beauty to be found in Will's mental instability. It's a disgusting thing to say, I know, but it, it, it there really is. And in that that perfect fifth where it doesn't it doesn't quite, you know, come home the way you expect it to but it still remains a beautiful sound. I think that's so fitting when it comes to Will. 
I see I see Jack as a perfect fourth because again it's a perfect interval but it's very stable and it has He's more, the bedrock. He, ex- I am right? the rock. Whereas the fifth is is more of a question and then for Alana that's why I see her more in what the third or the sixth range. I'm not sure. Bella I see as like unison or, or, or again maybe she's a fourth again very stable interval and I have no idea what uh what uh some of these are like I, who would who would be the minor second or the major seventh who's going to be that one sheesh now i gotta dig in um yeah, for the people out there uh minor uh, minor, minor second is going to be your jaws duh, duh. and on the other end of the spectrum dr right, chilton dr chilton he's limping in the room <laughs> oh, i feel like he's just like a major six like he's just happy and simple and he's like kind of joking around uh but no, see, I'm gonna have to think about that with each character. I think about it. and like maybe minor seventh for Franklin because he's just kind of sad. Oh. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. bringing yeah, no, things this down. Is, this is great to me, um, <laughs> I, I guess I can contribute on the poetic level. Uh, Go for it. Yeah, well, I just because obviously the composition of writing, um, prose or poetry, and, and composing music, there are parallels there i'm sure but yeah i guess hannibal i would i would hesitate to call it like perfect rhyming iambic pentameter but i could imagine him being in the tradition of uh the the great epics that were written in heroic couplets so much like milton's paradise lost or wordsworth's the prelude whereas will is certainly just chaotic free verse uh, akin to probably walt whitman See, I see Hannibal as sort of like a Gilgamesh kind of style epic, where it's like old school, like there's, but but it has that that pattern to it, but it can be sort of archaic. Though I think Milton's a great call as well. This is fun. <laughs> it's Sorry. Fun for us. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, I mean, you've already opened the door, so I'm going to have to ask you to continue. And we'll move on to our recurring segments, beginning, of course, with Kate's Classical Corner and Randy, because you are also a musician. I feel like now we'll finally have other contributions here, so I'm just going to kick back and listen. Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring in Fromage? Well, there are three uh, pieces of classical music featured in this episode. Uh, The first is a favorite of mine, uh, the Petzold Minuet in G. And part of the reason that's a favorite of mine is because uh, it's it's one of the pieces. It, it was written composed by Christian Petzold. Uh, it was put into the uh, J.S. Bach, um, the his notebooks for Anna Magdalena Bach, and for until the 1970s, everybody thought it was composed by Bach. Um, it's one of the pieces. It's written for keyboard, but everybody learns it when they're you know grow, when they're going up when they're playing piano or they're it playing was Petzold, violin. Wasn't it? It's Petzold, yeah. But uh, in this and it's in the Suzuki repertoire books. This is the piece, by the way, that Tobias's student is playing that we hear uh in it's in the suzuki books which is a series of uh, repertoire books for learning you know violin and and some other instruments as well um and they still haven't updated the book so it still says js bach and i found out that actually petzl composed it when i was in college and it exploded my brain uh so i always love mentioning that to people and for in the context of this i would say it could tie in if you want to tie it in to uh hannibal as a chameleon other in people taking credit for other work or whatever mostly it's just i think it's a fun factoid um so that's the penciled minuet then there's uh the dinner with tobias and hannibal is mendelssohn's intermezzo from a midsummer night's dream which is a gorgeous gorgeous piece yes uh and that it became that that 
transitions between uh, acts of Midsummer Night's Dream, which is that connection between music and and poetry with Shakespeare, uh, Sean. But this is it, it begins. Uh, it, it happens at the end of Act Two, and Hermia is uh, been abandoned by Lysander, and so she goes sets off after him into the woods to try to find. She'll either find death or she'll find him. That kind of a thing. So it's very anxious music. It's very, um, very nervous, and and it's there's a lot of forward momentum. So I think that fits really well with the scene it, it's just it's a love it's a lovely piece i'm very familiar with the scherzo from midsummer night's dream because it's on like every audition ever uh i'm less familiar with intermezzo but again i with that with that dinner scene where there's a lot going on it's a very uncertain relationship that the two of them have i think that's very fitting and of course the the one that everybody at this point has been listening to the podcast will recognize is the goldberg variations which is when hannibal goes over to the harpsichord and starts plunking it out, and then it, the music continues over the transition. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, is the that's the, the first music when we meet Hannibal in the pilot. It's featured prominently in Silence of the Lambs. It will come back again prominently in season two. Um, it is very much the Hannibal music. And I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts as to why it's it's jarring when you watch the scene that he he takes takes out Tobias. And immediately runs right over. It's it's almost like I want to say he's establishing an alibi for what like that Tobias came over to help with the harpsichord, and that's why he was there, like or something. I don't know why. Why does he so quickly and jarringly rush to the harpsichord? Because he's the devil, and that's just the devil is <laughs> a devilish creature, and he. I just think it adds to just the nature of who Hannibal is. Like he just did something horrible and now he wants to hear something beautiful that's just the kind of creature he would be i could see him sitting down and playing the whole thing for five minutes and before he anybody showed up at his apartment or at his office you know i i just think it's the kind of person hannibal would be i guess he's got blood on his hands though i'm like just like watch this don't get blood on your harpsichord first of all then it then come on be nice to the harpsichord but also trace evidence um but I think I'm sure that's, you know, it also could easily be a connection with the Sense of Lambs film where he then sits back down after all that mayhem and uh, continues listening to the piece and, and eating his, his dinner. Sean, any any thoughts? As to why he does that? Yeah, or or just the use of the of this piece or, you know, I, I guess we're introduced to Hannibal with this piece so then this is like us introduced to the more physical Hannibal again than with this piece I don't know what do you think um I don't know other than they are even for me uh had we not done season two already I feel like I would have been picking up on the fact that now we're establishing certain themes for characters and situations so the repetition of some uh some pieces I think really does stick out yeah um, so those are the classical pieces featured in the episode. Not nearly as many as as last week's seven uh, this week. But as for the other scoring, um, I just have a few things. We get, of course, as is fitting with this episode, I can't believe we haven't mentioned the tableau yet. But there's a lot of cello in the scoring this week. No one will be surprised <laughs> to hear. Uh, when we get um, 
I, I like the way that the episode transitions from the Petzold Minuet to an original cello and sort of percussion scoring when Tobias is, we flash to him making the gut strings, and then it comes back to the Petzold after the fact. Uh, when we are with the body, there's a, a lot of cello there as well. There's this, again, there's this held note underneath a significant part of that scene. And like we've been talking about earlier, change is one of the constants in in music when you hold a note for a particularly long time listeners either shut you know like kind of stop paying attention or they get anxious waiting for the for it to change so it's a good way to build suspense um i think this is the first really prominent cello scoring there's been a lot of clarinet but i think this is the first prominent cello scoring so i thought that was fun um let's see when when will and alana have their moment we get our happy Winston music again. Yes, I did notice that. So we'll talk a little bit about that in Spoiled Meat, uh, but for now, let's, I'll, I'll hold there. Um, and then when we have that Tobias and Will sequence, again, we get some, we get a lot of really um, low cello, and we get bowed percussion that builds sort of like these clusters of sound, but we also get very familiar percussion for people who've seen season two that percussion is familiar when you're in the basement of tobias's sort of lair Mm -hmm. um that's really reminiscent of some of the stuff we're going to get in season two and i'll talk a little bit more about that in spoiled meat but i don't want to say more than that um as for the very end we get um yeah over the, the last credits i i really enjoyed i haven't talked about the credits music yet but in this episode um the 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 Credits go to a pairing of harpsichord and cello, and I just sort of love that because, of course, Hannibal plays the harpsichord and Tobias played the cello. So, you know, that was the music that takes us out, which I thought was kind of fun there as well. So that, that, those are the details I have for this episode with the, um, with the, with the scoring. There's, there's more, and again, hit me up on Twitter if you want to talk about it more. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, had, I had some fun with the original scoring this week. Uh, just as <clears throat> as you were talking and you mentioned A Midsummer Night's a Dream, I'm going to have to ask both of you to indulge me for just a moment. Uh, Randy, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Shakespeare's work, but on this podcast uh, we've talked before about some of the similarities between uh, Hannibal and Othello and uh, just thinking about Shakespeare and TV in general. Um, I can make a very, very strong case for why Game of Thrones is a spiritual uh, adaptation of King Lear and just thinking now, uh, I would probably point to Han- uh, Hamlet and Rectify as kind of very similar in many ways. And so uh, Kate or Randy, if you're familiar as well, um, to complete the four great tragedies, I was trying to think what TV show currently would be Macbeth because I wasn't sure. Hmm. hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's another good one. <laughs> Again, oh. just, just, just indulge me. But what about yeah, Breaking but, Bad? You know, that's it's off the air, but I feel like that is extremely appropriate in many ways. Yeah, I think of you know the the later Skyler arc. There's some Lady Macbeth kind of stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and of course the whole you know Macbeth's prophecy and and whatnot. It's cancer diagnosis essentially. It's I think it it's it's there. Yes. That's a good one. It's a, it's a good one to think about. There we go. Okay, so Shakespeare's four great tragedies can equate to contemporary television. Boom. I feel like we, we have done a good service <laughs> to the world it. right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the second of our 
recurring segments, which is the devil in the details. So any little things that stood out, be they visual or otherwise, lines of dialogue that were comedic, uh, anything that we made note of that you'd like to mention. I'll start off by uh, pointing again. Okay, I don't know if this was last week <clears throat> or two weeks ago. Uh, or earlier when I had mentioned that we get a shot of Will looking at a crime scene, and in the background you can see Jack uh, turn to him, still looking at him. We don't actually see Jack's face, but we can tell that his body is positioned so that he's looking at Will. Uh, as everybody's leaving the the crime scene at the theater, we get a wide shot, and we can see Jack pause on the steps and look at Will as Will's back is to him. So this is twice now where like Jack has lingered, on Will, which I don't really know what that means, other than Jack is still kind of just amazed as to what Will does, or he's worried about Will, but um, just an interesting detail, I thought. Yeah, and it's nice, because when he's speaking with Will, you don't necessarily, he's very brusque, so you don't get a strong sense that he's concerned for him, or worried about him, so I like that that is on the fringes of the performance, if you're looking for it, that that's neat. Um, I have that, of course, I noted that Beverly plays the violin because Beverly's awesome and awesome people play the violin, apparently. Uh, I know I'm biased on that count, but that is my first <laughs> note. Uh, Randy, I know this one isn't as fresh in your mind, but were there any details that you wanted to mention? Yeah, there is one thing that still always gets me about this episode whenever I watch it. It's the opening scene when Will is sitting and working on his boat engine. I think it's a very telling sign that will is about to embark on a journey a journey of his of sorts for him is about to without spoiling anything is about to begin and i think there's a lot of steps you know with him beginning to reach out to alana and hannibal reaching out to him that this is the first episode that really begins will's journey into the darker places of the mind and the world around him and I just always find that, that that little image of him working on a boat engine in the beginning is just always very interesting to me. It's a nice little precursor for what is to come. Um, let's see. Other little things that I had. I liked Hannibal's line of dialogue about that he didn't poison the food because he wouldn't do that to the food. Uh, a very Hannibal <laughs> thing to say. Uh, also that the, the wine that he has is from Virginia and is not French. And I'm not very versed in, in wine, but I've not known Virginia to be a source of kind of the the high-class wine, so that was... That's a revolution. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have as well, I really like the touch of that really vibrant blue butterfly in the, like, a, it's like a floral arrangement or something. It, behind Tobias, when they're at that dinner, um, sort of on the wall, there's like a table or something with a thing, but there's this like it's everything kind of it's very dark but there's this really vibrant blue butterfly and i uh but not only is it just very lovely um hannibal is of course very very good at interior design as well as you know killing people with badass ninja skills and uh i particularly was noticing it because the music there with that intermezzo from midsummer night's dream very much uh gives that sense of a butterfly you know it's very fluttery i guess you could say and it's uh, it's the rhythm of it, the, the eighth notes, the flowing eighth notes and everything. So I thought that that kind of tied in with that. It was a nice little visual touch as well. And then uh, I just, I love uh, Hannibal's windowpane suit he's wearing in that scene. It's like this brown with like orange. And uh, again, always, I always love Hannibal's suits. He's so dapper. 
And then the last thing I have is that again, I, and I'm curious if, if it was just me, I don't know if anybody else is noticing this, but Hannibal still seems like he's kind of shiny or clammy in those scenes between him and Dr. Du Maurier. And there is again, that same similar shot where the lights make his eyes look very much like a slit up and down that again, very shark like. So I, I was noticing that as well. So I, f I feel like it can't be a, uh, an accident now because it's two different episodes that I've seen noticed that so either I'm making it up or they meant for me to see it <laughs> listeners will have to let me know which one it is after all of the things that we've seen going back to this first season that recur I don't think anything in this show is an accident anymore so yeah uh, the last detail that I'll mention is uh, when we had that episode where Freddie Lowndes had published the article suggesting that uh, Abel Gideon was the Chesapeake Ripper, when we saw the, the noticeable disdain on Hannibal's face, uh, we kind of get a similar one here when Tobias mentions that he had followed Hannibal to that bus yard, and you can just see uh, Hannibal seething underneath his skin, which I thought was a great uh, touch of performance by, by Mickelson which can be said about pretty much any scene that he's in, because, man, this guy is good. He's so good. <laughs> so uh, we'll move on now to the final recurring segment, and the newest, of course, which is Spoiled Meat. So if you are a first-time viewer of Hannibal and have not seen future episodes and would like to remain spoiled-free, please fast-forward now. Okay, so who put up the better fight, Tobias or Jack? Oh, clearly Jack. Yeah. Definitely Jack. Yeah, Tobias totally underestimated Hannibal. It, that's what it seems like to me, because it's like, yes, you're absolutely right, Randy, that it's the most um, on the ropes we've seen Hannibal to this point, but I was no noticing in uh, Mass Mickelson's performance that uh, he he never really seems like he's worried. In yeah, that that's fight. the thing, is that it feels like it should be a lot more dangerous for him, but he... It's almost like he, he that chaos, he's thriving in it. It becomes a controlled situation for him. It just shows how good he is at controlling things. I thought that, yeah, having this fight scene and knowing what we get later, it's a really good comparison um, just in terms of how Hannibal reacts in each situation. So I think that they were both beautifully choreographed. Obviously, the Jack one benefits from the scoring in the very first episode that we get. And then just in the sheer weight of everything in the world in the finale. Um, so that one's definitely the superior one. But this, I thought, again, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, um, was just a really good addition here. Uh, anything that either of you would like to mention? Um, Randy, do you have, I've got a couple things, but do you, do you have anything? Um, no, you go ahead first. Okay. Uh, well, I mentioned earlier during Kate's Classical Corner that I was going to come back to some of the scoring in this segment. And I just wanted to mention again, I know we've talked about it. anybody who's listening to our season two podcast will be aware, but just as a reminder, that happy Winston music, it's the, it's the music when he finds Winston and takes him home. It's the music when he and Alana kiss for the first time. And it's the music that plays as he visualizes hanging Hannibal up and slitting his throat and being sprayed with his blood. So, you know, that's what we have to look forward to in season two. So that's fun. <laughs> Those are three very similar things. Not yeah. 
not at all different. Um, also, I'm curious what you guys think of this. I really, again, again, I said it last week, but I really appreciate Dan Fogler's performance and the way that the show has humanized him increasingly with each episode. Uh, by the time in in this episode, he's I think he's completely likable and uh, very uh, very relatable, and his desperation with Hannibal when he's talking about Tobias, I thought was very well played, very well written. And I'm curious if you guys think of this, uh, what, what you think of this, do you feel like this is a sort of a preview of Will's struggle in the season two finale or like a, like a kind of a twist on it? Because he does call Hannibal and warn him. Hmm. The show's too good at folding in on itself. Sometimes that second season, the way it brings so much back from season one is a little too good at it. Yeah, I don't know that that's an intentional <laughs> parallel, but I'm curious. I'm curious what you guys think of that. And then, what does that? Who does that make each of them in that relationship? Who's Tobias and who's Franklin? Because we've seen last week the sort of the parallels between Franklin and Hannibal's neediness or that need for connection and friendship. I don't know, Sean. What do you think? Wait, so you're drawing a comparison between how Will calls Hannibal at the end of season two and what part here? And Franklin not really struggling with should he report Tobias's statements to the authorities. He fears for what Tobias may be and what he may have done, um, but he he doesn't know what he should do because this is his friend. Right. I think that both characters, uh, Franklin and Will, often feel like they should have control of the situations, that that outside presence of authority... Um, while certainly beneficial and probably would have solved a lot of each of their problems, um, that that they should be able to appeal to this other person that they've known so deeply and for some amount of time. And both of them end up being wrong. So surprise, surprise. Yeah. Um, I also have uh, I have a couple more. Uh, <laughs> Dr. DeMaurier, uh, but I don't take responsibility for his death. Um, yeah. Now that we know what they're talking about in that scene. That scene was particularly fun at the end of the episode. Um, she clearly blames Hannibal and his influence on her. Um, Hannibal says that she shouldn't blame herself. Um, I don't think he thinks that she should blame him. I think, I, I don't know who, who he thinks she should blame, but I, I liked uh, that, that again, that awareness that we now know that she has as to what Hannibal is and what he does to those around him, including her. Um, and then the last thing I have is just this is such a great progression of Will's sickness throughout this episode. What we get with um, that Tobias and Will scene and the dogs that he's hearing in the distance. Um, I, I just, again, that tie with Will and dogs and that danger, uh, him being the wounded animal, maybe crying out in the distance. But I think they've done just a really good job progressing his sickness in a way that if you've watched a lot of these shows, you feel like it's just our main, main character suffering from exposure to the dark world of killers, man. But really, he's just, he really needs some meds. Yeah. Well, he's only two episodes away from starting to draw clocks. Yep. Oh, man. It's, it's <laughs> so disturbing. I can't wait till we get there. Nah. <laughs> um, yeah. The, I mean, Franklin's also a good point of comparison when we look ahead at, at some of Hannibal's other patients, Margot and Mason. Uh, all very different in the office, and seeing what Hannibal sees in them, I think, is fascinating. Uh, the the one thing I'll mention 
was the mention of the theremin because we, we had talked about that, right? Mm-hmm. That we didn't know that he had played it, but here it is. In episode eight, stated that Hannibal plays the theremin, and mm-hmm. specifically because it is inherently freeform and it can generate any pitch, even between conventional notes, which, of course, aligns with Hannibal's personality. Mm-hmm. Whereas the harpsichord is so rigid, it's an interesting contrast of those two instruments being the instruments that he plays. Randy, were there any other spoilery things that you wanted to talk about? Uh, I don't think so. All right. Anything else, Kate? Um, I The only other things that I have that I, I did want to m- quickly mention are... Um, <laughs> I love how this show just sort of mocks what any other drama not even not necessarily crime drama but when any other drama would do because when will shows up and is like omg i just kissed lana i need to decompress about a man <laughs> it's like any other show that would be such a huge deal and they'd have like a very earnest conversation on this show he's like you interrupted my dinner for this are you are you kidding me <laughs> well they probably would have had sex on other shows too lana just wouldn't have been able to hold herself back from the damaged goods mm-hmm. that will had to offer yeah so that was and, fun. <laughs> yeah, it sets up the, the really weird five-way that we get in season two as well. Yep. And then the last thing I have, <laughs> we can't not comment on Death by Stag. Oh, my God. Yeah, I almost forgot about that. Because, what, last week the, they had drawn specific visual attention to that statue, and here it's used again. We actually don't get the the Will's stag in this, right? We just get no. care of Jacob Hobbs. Yeah. So the stag is still present and is used as the killing device. The, the stag as a tool of Hannibal in this episode certainly adds points to the the stag is bad column. We're keeping track, uh, Randy, by the way. Uh, we're not sure what the stag, stag means. Stag counts? Yeah. <laughs> so. Also, uh, Randy, just so you know, I'm, I'm also making a, a theory that Hannibal and Bedelia, once they land in Europe, they're going to spend some time with uh, a David Duchovny character. It's going to happen. Ooh. Okay. We want it to happen, so it's going to. It's, you gotta, you gotta have an X Files reunion on a show that is so akin to the X Files, right? Yeah, I think that would that would be fitting. But who would he play? He would play some university professor who impresses Hannibal with all of his culture, and who Hannibal will eventually kill. See, I feel like he should play a spin on his uh, um, Larry Sanders character. Only instead, like instead of being in love with Larry Sanders, he's in love with Hannibal. What if they make him the guy who's chasing Hannibal? That um, what if they take kind of adapt that character from the Hannibal book, the uh, the old detective who just wants a he just wants a bunch of money for finding Hannibal and chases him down to his orchestra and Hannibal hangs him up and dumps him over the edge of a building. You know, if that just all happened in the space of one episode, that would be enough for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we're putting that energy out there. Brian Fuller is eventually going to feel it in some way in his subconscious, and it'll happen. Nice. The covenant will be Barney. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's it for this week. Uh, Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Of course, thank you, Randy, for coming on and talking with us about this episode. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Easiest place to do it. Just follow me on Twitter at Process Media. I'm always pointing out things that I'm writing and you guys are writing and all of us at Sound on Sight are writing. And Kate? You can, of course, find me at Sound on Sight with uh, various articles going up. Um, I'm not reviewing anything. Oh, actually, you know, I don't really know when this is going to go up, so I don't know what I'm reviewing right now at Sound on Sight. 
but uh, you can check me out there. I'm on Twitter at The Televerse, and of course The Televerse is the TV podcast that uh, that I put out every week, and we talk about everything else, so the rest of TV, so just a few few shows over there. And then you can also, of course, find me um, uh, at The AV Club, where I'm reviewing various shows as well over the summer, Black Adder and Spartacus, but depending on when this goes up, it could be other stuff as well. And for those, because occasionally listeners um, reach out that are looking for a way to email email into Sean and myself, you can always email the televerse at gmail.com and I'll make sure that uh, I forward things on to Sean as well. So that's another way you can get in touch with the two of us. Yes, please do get in touch because we like to talk about this stuff. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing a podcast about it and we wouldn't be going back to a previous season to do a podcast about that. Hmm. Um, but you can find me, of course, on Twitter at my name, at Sean Coletti, as Kate mentioned, at the Televerse podcast. And then um, there won't be anything soon-ish in terms of written reviews because I'm trying to divert my uh, writing attention elsewhere at the moment. But um, some previous stuff you can find at TV Overmind or at Sound On Sight. But that's it for this week. Thank you again, listeners, for tuning in. Kate and I will be back next week to talk about Season 1, Episode 9, True Nomon. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but I don't care. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design.